Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Fox Nomad podcast. I'm your host, Anil Polat, Fox Nomad, and we've got a lot to get into today. I told you there would be a special or an extra episode of the podcast in the last episode of the podcast, which I hope you listened to, which was all of your messages from around the world in this corona lockdown situation. But I did promise you an extra episode, and that is this. So in today's episode, we've got a lot to get into. I'm going to talk about climate change and the effects of the coronavirus on the climate. I'm going to talk about how this is affecting the tech industry as well as Apple's latest releases. And finally, I want to talk a little bit and share with you a Pakistan Q&A that I recently did. All your questions on uh, traveling to Pakistan and basically taking questions from all of you, but also a lot of people from Pakistan, a lot of people on not only for tourists on what they can do or what they should expect when they go to Pakistan, but also questions I got from locals on what they should, how they should receive these tourists that will be coming hopefully in the future. And then at the end, I've got one YouTube channel that I want to share with you, some quarantine qu content, some quarantine content, which I think you'll enjoy since you're probably sitting at home. Hopefully you're, you're working. Uh, if you're working from home and you don't normally work from home, make sure you make a good impression on your boss because apparently all of us working from home has a really big impact on the environment. So remember a couple months ago, I did an episode where I got a couple of questions about whether or not flying less will actually do anything to help the environment. And coronavirus, I think one of the most interesting things about it for me and looking at it from like an engineer's mindset is that this is a mass global experiment, unprecedented on a lot of things. I mean, we're really measuring what the effects are of um, a very, very, very reduced human footprint on the planet right now. And then not just in terms of the environment, but we're also talking about uh, how this affects animals. So you're seeing in different parts of the world, animals that normally don't make it into city centers, you're finding those in city centers. And there are a couple articles, which I'll share in the show notes about animals in Paris and animals in India. And even this, there's this article about in the Daily Sabah talking about cats retaking Istanbul, which is total clickbait because they've already, they've already taken over. But we're doing this massive experiment on the world and uh, there's no other time that we might get this kind of data. And so scientists are really uh, hopping on and trying to, trying to make use of this very unprecedented uh, global experiment that that's happening right now. So I want to start with this article on Gizmodo. So Gizmodo has this, uh, this global air pollution interactive map, and it shows essentially how the air pollution has, what the difference is between January 20th, 2020, and March 20th, 2020, which was 10 days ago. And if you just look at the map, there are in the January map, there are all these little red spots which are centered around, it's sort of moving right now, centered around New York, Chicago, looks like probably Los Angeles, um, and Mexico City is there, and we've got Vancouver, Canada, Salt Lake City, Colorado, Denver, Colorado. And so you have these like red spots around cities, obviously that's because that's where people are, it's where the cars are in concentration. And if you look at it on March 20th, it is vastly reduced. But I think what's interesting about it 
as well. So if you look at this image, you've got these red spots of these high concentrations of pollution, and then you've got this sort of lighter green color, which you see um, throughout the map, which indicates uh, also air pollution, but at a reduced level. But if you look at the March 20th image, it's kind of interesting to see how much of that secondary pollution has spread out more. So, so if you look at, for example, Minnesota on January 20th, it's pretty empty. But then if you look at it in March 30th, it's got a little bit more of that low-lying pollution. And the same thing with Wyoming and Idaho, North Dakota. And for those of you who don't know where those states are, those of you um, listening from around the world, those states are very uh, sparsely populated states. And they're, they're in the upper western part of the United States. Uh, the Rocky Mountains cut through parts of there, and the other parts are plains. So there are not a lot of people there. Um, but if you look at even Nevada, obviously January 20th, uh, Las Vegas is one of those darker spots on the map. But then if you look at March, this is sort of low-lying uh, pollution sort of spreads. And uh, getting into this article, it's very interesting to see um, what this actually what this actually means. Um, and there are other satellite data here from uh, China as well. Um, so it looks like uh, Earther says from this article, they've assembled an interactive map to explore changes in air pollution in not only the US, but globally. The map runs on Google Earth Engine and uses data collected by the European Space Agency's Sentinel 5P satellite, which circles the Earth, capturing various types of data. It includes four snapshots from December to March from December 2019 to March 2020, it shows the concentration of nitrogen dioxide in the atmosphere, which is a handy proxy for human activity. This article says, quote, nitrogen dioxide is produced by fossil fuel burning and therefore is often used as an urban pollution tracer, says Barbara Dix, an astro, no, an atmospheric researcher at the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences at the University of Colorado Boulder. She told Arthur in an email, burning fossil fuels directly emits a lot of nitrous dioxide and nitrous oxide, often referred to as NOx together, uh, but the nitrous oxide is rapidly converted into nitrous dioxide in the atmosphere. Nitrous dioxide can easily be measured by satellite. And it says the data here presented in a series of uh, single day snapshots, weather patterns can blow pollution around and disperse it while rain and even the level of sunshine can further change readings taken by this Sentinel 5P satellite. There are also natural sources of nit nitrogen dioxide that it can affect the readings. Um, and it says that the data that you see in the Google Earth engine is not uh, quality filtered. And she notes that this means clouds can mess with the readings, which may be why on some interactive maps, there are rougher looking areas like Northern New England in March or signs of pollution in the Seattle area where there may not be that much. Will take researchers time to really dive into the data and filter and fine-tune the understanding of COVID-19's impact on air pollution. Despite these caveats, the trends in many cities around the U United States and around the world are staggering and clearly at least a part tied to the changing the changes forced by the COVID-19 pandemic. So I think what that says for us at least is in terms of flying, in terms of flying less. Uh, I think we got our answer. I think flying less and driving less does have an impact on the environment. Now, 
what we're going through right now is a very extreme case. I mean, there are very few flights in disguise. There are very few people driving around. A lot of the world, especially a lot of the world where manufacturing and a lot of the world where a lot of the cars are in general, a lot of that part of the world are locked down. And so the 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 results right now are drastic. Now, I think what this says for us flying a little bit less is probably the same thing. It probably means that, yeah, there's definitely an impact on the environment, but we it, it's probably a much, much less. Um, but I think the data that we w that we can see from these charts, like if you look at California, especially is a really good indicator. I mean, the Los Angeles uh, dot is just, it's not a dot, it's like a huge mass over this part of California. You also have that in San Francisco, San Jose, as well as San Diego and Tijuana. And these are these massive uh, spots of, of pollution um, especially in the United States, Midwest, and uh, no, sorry, the Midwest, in the Northeast corridor, you can actually see the outline of the highways. It's these satellite images are pretty, pretty amazing. So, um, I think if you can see those images, which I'll link to in the show notes, you'll, you'll, you'll begin to understand that this is having just this massive impact on the environment. Um, also, for those of you who have seen those um, photos or those stories about the dolphins making it to the Venice canals or those uh, elephants which got drunk in a field, I don't know, maybe you've seen those stories, but I have bad news for you because uh, according to National Geographic, those are all fake. Yep, there are no dolphins in or swans in the canals of Venice, although... The canal waters are a lot clearer because they don't have all the the uh, the motorboats going through there. But sorry to inform you, but yeah, there's no uh, there's no dolphins there. And that cute photo of the elephants getting drunk in the cornfield, yeah, that's sorry, sorry. Uh, so. Uh, this National Geographic article says the swans in the viral post regularly appear in the canals of Burano, a small island in the greater Venice metropolitan area where the photos were taken. The, quote, Venetian dolphins were filmed at a port in Sardinia in the Mediterranean Sea, hundreds of miles away. No one has figured out where the drunken elephant photos came from, but a Chinese news report debunked those viral posts. While elephants did recently come through a village in Yunnan province, China, their presence isn't out of the norm. They aren't the elephants in the viral photos, and they didn't get drunk and pass out in a tea field. So yeah, uh, those are not real. The phenomenon highlights phenomena non highlights how quickly eye popping, too good to be true, rumors can spread in a time of crisis. People are compelled to share the photos. Blah blah blah. It goes on uh, to say uh, a whole bunch of other stuff. But what's interesting about that is then, so that article, the fake article in National Ge Geographic was posted on March 20th. And then on March 27th, they, they posted, why do people want so badly to believe this fake story to be true? And this was posted a week later by the National Geographic. And it says the most widely read story on our website last week was about these fake animal stories going viral on social media, the dolphins supposedly in the Venetian canals, elephants purportedly making themselves at home in a in, at home in a town in China getting drunk on corn wine. And it said, most of our readers on Facebook talking about the story were glad to learn the truth. Some spreading, spreading something that's not true, whether it's as small as a positive story 
about animals or consequential as an unproven cure for COVID-19 can make people feel even more distrustful during a time of vulnerability. Social psychologist Aaron Vogel told, told National Geographic's Natasha Daly. So it's not surprising, she said, that some readers were angry at us for debunking these photos, more than a few actually. Quote, wow, this is like telling your kids Santa isn't real. Oh boy, did I just tell a whole bunch of kids that Santa isn't real? Uh, anyway, uh, spoiler alert. And then right after the child happy, happily sat on Santa's lap in the, in the mall, one person said on Facebook, another person wrote this National Ge Geographic, quote, shame on you, Nat Geo. You should have let us all believe the lies <laughs> that brought us a little bit of sunshine into our hearts in these dark times. And then the National Geographic replied, in our defense, we shared a bunch of true positive animal stories in the same time to not leave you all totally hopeless. I'm going to link to all those real photos as well. So if you want to check those out, because, you know, the internet is not short of any cute animal stories. Um, and they do make this point. National Geographic says the point is that we are a fact-driven, science-based publication. Telling the truth is our business. We still appreciate some good sarcasm, though. Some of our, some of the Facebook commenters nailed it. Quote, I saw a mammoth in the woods the other day. It's really great to see them make a return. Really great. Tim H. wrote, quote, I saw a velociraptor yesterday. He was solving a Rubik's Cube. Anthony F. wrote, quote, my cats and dogs grew opposable thumbs during quarantine, and now they like to play chamber music. And there you go. So those animals, those dolphins, man, I know, those dolphins aren't real. I, I had to read this article like 18 times to actually believe that that wasn't real. I wanted that to be real so bad. Um, but if you read the other stories, which I'll also link to in the show notes, wherever you're listening to this, Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, you can click those links and you can see those. But clearly the effect on um, on the environment is there. It is noticeable. It's in the air. There's also this article, which I won't get into now, but it talks about how uh, living in a city and air pollution actually makes you more vulnerable to respiratory illnesses like COVID. And I will leave that in the show notes as well. And yes, even though everybody is on lockdown, I came across this article in the BBC, which I thought was fascinating. It's called Lockdown, What Lockdown? Sweden's Unusual Response to Coronavirus. This came out on March 29th, so basically the day before uh, I recorded this podcast. Uh, so it's very interesting. It talks about why Sweden, there's really no lockdown in Sweden. It says, while swaths of Europe's population endure lockdown conditions in the face of coronavirus outbreak, one country stands almost alone, allowing life to go on much closer to normal. It says, after a long winter, it's become just warm enough to sit outside in the Swedish capital and people are making the most of it. Elsewhere in the city, nightclubs have been open this week, but gatherings for more than 50 people will be banned starting Sunday, which is yesterday. Compared to neighboring Denmark, which has restricted meetings to 10 people, or the UK, where you're no longer supposed to meet outside anybody of your household. On the roads in Sweden, things are noticeably quieter. Stockholm's public transportation, public transport company SL says it saw passengers' number fall by 50% on subway and commuter trains last week. And it says polls suggest that 50% of Stockholmers are working remotely. Uh, so essentially... Uh, it says Stockholm's business region says a state-funded company that supports the city's global business community estimates that rises to at least 90% in the capital's largest firms, 
thanks to tech-savvy workforce and a business culture that's long promoted flexible and remote working practices. Quote, every company has that has the possibility to do this, they are doing this and it works, says the CEO, Stefan uh, Ingvarsson. Uh, his words cut to the heart of the phenomenon of the government strategy in Sweden, quote, self-responsibility, self-responsibility. Public health authorities and politicians are still hoping to slow the spread of the virus without the need for draconian measures. There are more guidelines than strict rules with a focus on staying at home if you're sick or elderly, washing your hands and avoiding any non-essential travel as well as working from home. Sweden so far has reported 3,500 cases of the virus and 105 deaths deaths okay so the article goes on to say we who are adults need to be exactly this adults not spread panic or rumors prime minister stefan Löfven said in a televised address to the nation last weekend quote no one is alone in this crisis but each person has a heavy responsibility quote and uh so that's very interesting and it goes on to say that a majority of swedes watched and approved of his speech according to uh, Norvis, a major polling company. Meanwhile, in Sweden, there's a high level of trust in public authorities, which many believe is driving locals to adhere to the voluntary guidelines. Uh, demography might also be a relevant factor in the country's approach. In contrast to multi-generational homes in Mediterranean countries, more than half of Swedish households are made up of one person, which cuts the risk of the virus spreading within families. Meanwhile, Swedes love the outdoors and officials have been uh, keeping that people physically and mentally healthier is one other reason that they're keen to avoid rules that would keep people cooped up at home. Quote, we have to combine looking at minimizing the health effects of the virus outbreak and the economic impacts of the health crisis, uh, the CEO of Stockholm's Chamber of Commerce said. Uh, the business community here really thinks that the Swedish government and the Swedish approach is more sensible than in many other countries. Um, but there's also, as there usually is, a flip side. Um, and so Swedes, it says here, are starting to question the country's unique approach. Quote, I think many people are prone to listen to the recommendations, but this kind of critical situation, I'm not sure that it is enough, says Dr. Emma Franz, an epidemiologist based at the Swedish Medical University at the Karolinska Institute. She's calling for clear instructions on people on how they should interact in public places such as shops and gyms. And so that is a very interesting case. I mean, if Sweden is a very interesting case, uh, it will be interesting to see how they continue, if they continue on their guidelines. But it seems like most places are, are still open. you got gyms and barbershops are open, hair salons and that kind of thing. Um, and so it's, it's interesting. And I think everybody's wondering whether or not what's going on now if the lockdowns, I mean, people are, are for sure questioning it, right? Like, I mean, is this the right thing to do? And also, you when you make rules for everybody, you got to kind of make them in a way that everybody will understand and follow. So you can't have individualized rules because most people will break those rules if they want to understand them. So this is a very interesting test case. Again, sort of like the climate issue or the climate situation, we're running this massive global experiment across many, many, many countries and I think the data that we gather from, let's say, Sweden's approach to the United States' approach to China's approach to so on and so on will give us a lot of data and feedback to hopefully uh, be able to counter and address and adjust and adapt to these situations if they happen again in the future in a, 
in a much more efficient and effective way. And I think that's what will come out of all of this, hopefully, if we use the data that we have at hand. All right, so in the last episode, I did mention the sort of the people have been asking me what the impact has been uh, for me, both in terms of travel and in just terms of daily life. And I kind of got into that in the last episode, but I did mention that what I'm seeing, which I find interesting, interesting in the sense of, uh, I guess, looking at a little bit from a, an outside point of view, which is um, the travel ads have slowed down significantly and and tech things that like review products that I was going to get, those have all kind of stopped. Um, and companies are just trying to figure out when they can sort of reboot and get going again. Um, and it seems kind of intuitive that, you know, travel advertising at this time would probably slow down. It's probably going to pick up pretty soon because uh, I'm assuming that companies are just going to just pushing them off. And I, I think that's a little bit what's happening in terms of tech, in terms of the review products and the gear that that was headed to me for me to test on YouTube and share with you. Um, but what's also really interesting is how this has impacted, for example, Google I.O. is coming, I think at end of May, and then the Worldwide Developer Conference, which is Apple's big uh, developer conference, happens usually, I think, in June. Um, so both of those are going to be online only. That's when Google debuts uh, the highlights of the latest, of the next version of Android. Worldwide Developer Conference is kind of a mixed bag, so I guess we're going to see little bits of iOS 14, I think it is now. Yeah, iOS 14. Um, maybe some small product releases, maybe some refreshes, maybe like a, we're going to get that kind of iPhone SE kind of version. I think that's coming out. Um, and then, yeah, but... And Apple just released a couple of products actually about a week ago, which I want to get into. But we might actually be seeing uh, a delayed iPhone release this year. So the iPhone might not actually make it for its normal. It's about announced September and then it starts shipping like a couple weeks later. That That's probably, it's it's up in the air right now is, is from what I'm reading. So The Verge has this great YouTube video, which I will also link to in the show notes. Um, and if you like all these show notes, why don't you give this podcast five stars on wherever you're listening to this, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. If you haven't already and you're listening to this, pause the podcast, go to wherever you're listening to this, give it five stars, and then come back. Is that? There you go. It's it's all it's all sanitized, so you can do it and not have to communicate with a human being. So there you go. But anyway, this Verge uh, video is very interesting. So it talks about basically how manufacturing has changed since 2013. Long story short, uh, because I don't know if I can share the video with you on a podcast. I don't know what the how that works. But uh, basically what it says is we know manufacturing from basically from Henry Ford. So Henry Ford when he was making the first Ford cars, developed the assembly line, which I think a lot of us are very intuitively familiar with. You have products going down a line and you have, you add like widget A, widget B, widget C, widget D, you get a car. And if any one of those products like widget C is missing, then you cannot make the car. The whole assembly line shuts down. And up until about 2013, they were doing what was called um, batch inventory. What that means is 
they would calculate how many widget A they need, how many widget B, how many widget C they need, and they would bulk order all of that stuff. So they would, uh, you know, calculate that they're going to make 100,000 cars or 50,000 or whatever in a certain period of time, order all the raw supplies for that, and then ship them out. Now you can see the the sort of inherent downsides to, to that process. You can see the upside. One, it's, it's a much easier calculation. Obviously, a lot of this up until 2013, like think about before the internet, before communication, before everybody was online, it would be much more difficult to sort of calculate how many cars are going to sell. Like how many cars are you, do you need to make? Because obviously once the parts aren't used, then uh, they're not going to be as useful. Uh, so you can see sort of the inherent advantages, which are you can save money by buying things in bulk. You can put out a certain number. You know what your costs are going to be up front. Um, and then the chance of you running out of a product in the supply chain like widget C is not really going to happen if you buy everything ahead of time. However, it can be inefficient as well because you can be uh, left with leftover parts. Your cars might not sell enough. Um, fortunately, in those days, uh, a lot of those widgets, as I'm calling them, were sort of generic parts. So you could, they're metal parts, so you can melt them down, use them for other things, raw materials. Uh, you might be able to use the same type of screw and the same type of, of bolt combination in a newer product and so on. But when it comes to tech, that's not really possible. So it's not really a feasible thing to do. You can't really take last year's iPhone camera and put it in the new iPhone camera if you have some left over from 2020, right? Like, or from 2019. That doesn't really work. People want the newest, latest, and greatest stuff. So they don't want the oldest stuff. So the internet basically in 2013, what it allowed for was, it's called continuous production uh, assembly line. And basically what that does is companies now just order the specific number of parts they need for a specific manufacturing track, which means they're making a week's worth of iPhones, so they're just going to order what they need for the week. They're going to run out of that, they're going to reorder it, and it's basically all computerized and it's calculated to the product, literally to the number of every little part that you can imagine. And these parts are not just coming from one or two sources, they're coming from sources all over the world. So they're using gold from South Africa, for example, for the circuits, and then they're getting like chips from South Korea and from Japan and from China, and then they're using some other parts from the US and maybe the lenses from Germany and so on. So to put together like a phone, for example, they're getting all of these different parts and they're getting them like at the last minute because they wanna get the latest version of everything that they can. They don't want anything to be old. If you buy a whole bunch of cameras for your phone and then six months later you start manufacturing them, the, there's a really good chance that those cameras are just going to be out of date already. So they do this thing called continuous production um, and that makes supply chains much more efficient, but it also makes supply chains much more fragile. So essentially uh, what we're going to see now, so as the world goes on lockdown and then comes out of lockdown, Obviously, the lockdown is not uniform across the world in terms of when places start and when they stop, what parts of society are affected and what parts aren't. South Korea, it looks like, might is still in a lockdown, but it looks like China is slowly ramping up production again, especially in Wuhan. 
You're seeing some factories slowly start ramping up now over the next week. Um, but And we know that iPhone is made in China, but that's not going to help Apple because a lot of those parts for those iPhones come from South Korea and they come from Japan. They come from the United States. Obviously, a lot of flights are not taking place. So the potential, I guess the good thing is since um, Apple does, since they're going to get all these parts at the very last minute, there's still a chance they can get all these parts. But on the flip side, you're looking at supply chains, which are going to be disrupted for months now. And you're also looking at no manufacturing taking place. So there's going to be this gap this year where we might see tech products really that were going to come out September, October, the usual, you know, that tech cycle that's coming really around the beginning of fall. We could easily see that get pushed back right up into Christmas. I could see companies, you know, they're going to want to get those products out for the shopping season. And we don't know how the shopping season is going to be affected either. So all of this is to say that we're looking at, for most people, this is going to be a potential iPhone delay it, it could be we don't know yet i mean but i could imagine if this goes on if lockdown goes down goes down goes on for another four to six weeks we could easily see production of the iphone pushed back but fortunately for many of you those of you who've been looking for some new apple products apple very quietly uh, released two products last week uh surprising because their website basically is like hey uh, we're not shipping things right now and all of our stores are closed. But if you want, we just made this pretty respectable MacBook Air. And I want to talk about this MacBook Air because the MacBook Air is the most popular laptop that Apple makes. I'm surprised too. I didn't know that. I thought it was the Pro. But it is the MacBook Air. It's the most popular um, laptop they make. Obviously, the main feature is how thin and light it is. That's the main feature of the MacBook Air. It's never been like a, a power horse, power, powerhouse of a laptop. It's never been the fastest um, or the best laptop. And that's really left to the MacBook Pro line. And then you, you used to have the, the MacBook, just the MacBook line as well. But it seems like there's a bigger separation this year between the MacBook Pro and the MacBook Air. So the MacBook Pros now are really... They fixed a lot of problems like that keyboard and in the new MacBook Air, that keyboard, which was a freaking nightmare from 2016 to like basically earlier this year, they fixed the keyboard. Now you've got these uh, modified, I think butterfly switch keyboards, they're calling it. So you've got that and they've made this big separation, I feel like, between the MacBook Air and the MacBook Pro. So you've got the MacBook Pro 16 inch, which is this starts at $2,400. It is a beast of a machine. It's really for people who are going to be doing a lot of things that are going to push a graphics card or going to push a processor. I mean, that that machine, uh, if you video edit like I do, you're going to need something like that. You're going to want something like that. Um, but if you're doing like normal web browsing, typing up documents, emails, that kind of basic stuff, you don't you don't need a MacBook Pro. I mean, if you want one, by all means, and you can afford it, get one. But you don't really need it. It's not you're not going to really max out the capability of a MacBook Pro 16 inch. And then in the smaller end, you've got the MacBook Pro 13 inch, which probably is going to get a refresh as well in the not too uh, distant future. And that's about twelve hundred, thirteen hundred dollars. But again, that's a machine that you're probably not going to push to its limits for most people. And I think 
there is something that, you know, we've sort of lost the meaning of the word pro in a lot of tech products. Um, you know, it does stand for professional, like that's, that should be the meaning of that word. And that was the word words meaning for tech products up until like pretty recently. And now it's like a marketing tool to call something a pro and it's really not pro, right? But like, you've probably heard about the new Mac pro that's up to $50,000 and people are like, why would anybody need that? Why would anybody need? Well, that pro name again is for professionals. So that's for movie studios that are, you know, editing like feature films. They're going to need a machine like that to cut all that kind of high grade, high def footage, you know, with, uh, you know, a whole bunch of people working on it, uh, really things that are going to just max out a machine. That's what that pro is for. So you're not going to buy a $50,000 Mac, but a movie studio probably is going to buy a couple of them. And if you think about a movie budget, uh, $50,000 out of a, a movie budget of hundred or more million dollars is, is nothing. So that's what those are for. All of that said, this new MacBook Air looks like a really good consumer level machine. It's got a 13.3 retina inch display, which is the same size display as the MacBook Pro 13 inch. It's got a four core, I -core, uh, four core Intel Core i7 processor, up to 16 gigs of memory and up to two terabytes of storage, which on the spec sheet, and it's got 11 hours of battery life, a little bit longer than the 13 inch MacBook Pro. It's got the touch uh, touch ID and the backlit keyboard and the improved keyboard or the actually not improved, just like the unmucked up version of the keyboard. Um, so anyway, that was released as well as the new iPad Pro with the floating keyboard, uh, floating, I guess, additional keyboard, which you can get for so the iPad Pro is 800. You can get the floating keyboard sometime in May for about $400 more. That was pretty cool, but... I think if you're looking for a new laptop and you're looking at Apple products and you're looking for something that's not like top level, max level, I think the MacBook Air is going to be it. It's it's finally a machine that can really do, that's not going to outdate itself too fast. In the past, like the MacBook Air would be awesome. Like it's so thin, so great. But those components that they had inside weren't always the best. They weren't always like this, the, the fastest and the most, you know, up-to-date parts. And when you have that, then you would kind of, it would outdate itself much more quickly than any of the other line of the Apple Mac, especially the Pros. The Pros will last you like five years. But the MacBook Air would start to get slow or feel like it's slow over time much quicker because of the internals weren't so great. But this latest MacBook Air, the internals are much improved. It's a really good laptop. It's about a thousand bucks. Um, I was going to get my hands on one and hopefully I will, uh, when this, all this stuff ends, I can give you a full, uh, review more than this kind of first look at it. But, uh, I just wanted to bring that up. Apple quietly dropped that MacBook Air. It is $9.99. It is a really nice, uh, addition to their lineup. Um, and so I think we're gonna, that, that was very quietly dropped as well as the MacBook, as well as the iPad Pro with the floating screen which kind of puts it in this sort of competition with the MacBook Air. And I, I can imagine in a couple of generations, in a couple of years, we might might actually see an iPad Pro that can do maybe what a MacBook Air can do. I think that's where they're headed. I think that's the, the foreshadowing they're giving us with this floating keyboard system, 
which basically makes the iPad Pro a screen. It has a mouse cursor on it as well. You can, and it has a trackpad you can add to it and all this stuff. So I think that's what we're going to see. Anyway, that's what's going on with the tech world with Apple. Um, oh yeah, iPad Pro, yeah. Uh, Mac mini, new Mac mini out. Definitely would take a look at that as well. If you're looking for a smaller sort of kind of quote desktop setup um, with at home, that new Mac mini also more powerful internals, which I like to see this from Apple. I don't care that everything is as thin and as sleek or whatever. We want those powerful internals. And that's what really has sort of separated Apple in the past. You know, you want, you want that. And I think that's where they're headed, which is also a good sign. And now let's just hope that manufacturing can keep up ahead of this coronavirus. And I wanted to share this. So I recently did a Q&A on YouTube, um, taking questions from all of you about Pakistan, about travel to Pakistan. So I wanted to share that with you here, um, just to note that this was recorded and there is a video version of it as well. So if I, there may be times where I mention something that's on the screen, um, but there's not too many. So it's really something that you can just listen to. If you've ever been sort of interested in traveling to you know, a part of the world which you may not have considered or interested to hear the questions that people send, which I always find the most interesting. Like, it's it's always interesting to hear when you have a, any destination, whatever it is, to hear people's questions about it. Like, my questions might not be the same as yours or yours might not be the same as somebody else's. So I hope you'll enjoy this um, Pakistan travel Q&A and uh, hear what people had to ask and hear my responses of traveling to a part of the world, which... I think is going to be an upcoming popular travel destination, but right now is still on the cusp of, of really becoming mainstream. All right. So the first question from Techno Society, how was your visit in Pakistan? Well, I think the videos show it that I had a really good time. Pakistan was a very unexpected country for me in the sense that it was completely not what I was expecting and in a very good way. And I think a lot of travelers would consider Pakistan would probably feel that way. And I think that's why if you see my video about Pakistan being on the cusp of tourism, I think that's why it's on the cusp because a lot of those preconceptions from the past have still remained. So Pakistan is still clearing up its reputation from that. But its tourism infrastructure is very strong. There's a lot to see and a lot to do there. And there's a big change going on in Pakistan. So I think it makes a very unique travel destination. And that all, all of that surprised me. Okay, second question, where can Pakistan improve? I'm expecting a whole list. All right, well, I can't give you a whole list because I'm not really qualified uh, for a whole list. I think, honestly, Pakistan is doing a very good job in terms of tourism infrastructure and also its security situation has improved a lot. It's got the pieces really in place to become an upcoming major travel destination, but I think that's just with time. It's going to take time for the tourism industry there to build up and recover and for it to take off, but the pieces are definitely in place. Okay, Arslan's asking, what countries will you be traveling again in the future and any plans to come back to Pakistan? Well, I started travel blogging, for those of you who don't know, over 10 years ago, and I started writing and doing photography. And at that time, my mission was to visit every country in the world. You can check out my about page, which talks about me starting the blog and then going off. And for those of you who know me just from YouTube, I really, didn't do YouTube at all up until about a year and a half, two years ago. Before that, I'd have the couple of smattering of YouTube videos that weren't really anything. So the videos were kind of a new addition, but I've been blogging this whole time. 
I've been trying to go to every country in the world and I'm getting closer. I think I'm about 80 countries in, maybe 90 or so. So it's not like something I'm rushing to complete, but it's just sort of a general goal, which helps lead me to a lot of different destinations that I might not have visited otherwise. And as far as whether or not I'll return, if I have any plans, those of you who've been watching my best city to visit travel tournament, I'll link down there. As of the time of the filming of this video, it's still going on. It's in the last day of voting and Islamabad and Singapore are tied. So they're basically neck and neck and I don't know which one will win. We'll find out in about 12 hours from now. But whichever city wins, basically there's eight cities left now in the tournament. There will be four, two. And the city that wins, I always visit that city in the year. And Islamabad has a good chance of at least going to the next round. And if it wins the next two rounds and wins the entire best city tournament, you can be sure I'll be in Islamabad later this year. All right, the next question by another. What is your experience while traveling in Pakistan? And do you recommend others? So what's my experience? It's hard to really sum up in just a one quick little synopsis but i'd say unexpected that's probably the thing that comes to mind the most unexpected in a good way that's my experience traveling in pakistan and what i recommend it to others well like i said in my cusp video i think it's not a destination yet that's for everybody i think right now it's good for backpackers it's good for adventurous travelers it's good for outdoor travelers it's good with people who already have some travel experience it's not a place that people who don't travel very frequently are going to just hop into it's not for luxury travelers, those travelers, those type of travelers who are a lot more cautious, who are a lot more, really, they want the sort of the path to be worn out for them before they arrive. Pakistan doesn't have that yet, but with a couple of more years of travelers arriving, then you might start to see those travelers coming in. But it's always the first adopters of backpackers and adventure travelers. Those are the people that are going to come first. Those are the people that are going to wear that travel path first for everybody else to arrive down in a couple of years from now. All right, next question from Hidden. How was the food and the people of Pakistan? What are your advice to other tourists related to Pakistan? Food, very, very good, very flavorful and very spicy. I loved it. I, the food I had in Pakistan was very good. I can't think of a bad meal that I had. Again, the flavors were just something that stand out to me that it, the food was very flavorful. And when Pakistani people say spicy food, I mean, they mean spicy. Like this is, I like spicy food and I can handle a fair amount of spice. But in Pakistan, especially in Karachi, the spice levels are just up here. So if you love spicy food, then it's definitely a good destination for you to go to try the food. And what is your advice to other tours related to Pakistan? Well, to be honest with you, it's hard to kind of really generalize that. It's because the country is so large. So as I say that now, I'd say try to see as much of the country as you can. Pakistan is a huge country. Don't just go to one city and think you've seen it all. Definitely try to get up north. Try to, you know, at least Islamabad, Lahore, Karachi, I think is a good sort of triangle, at least to start out with. But there's a lot more to see. If you're an adventure traveler, definitely there's stuff for you. If you're a foodie, there's stuff for you. If you like culture, there's stuff for you. But I would try to get around to as much of the country as you can in the time of your trip. All right, Aiza, how similar are Pakistan and India? What's the major difference between the two countries? Where do you see Pakistan in the coming years? So that's a good question, actually. And I've been to India a lot. I've been to India oh, probably 15 times or so. And it's hard not to compare the two countries. And actually, I've been thinking about doing an entire video on this topic. And it might be a little controversial. Actually, I'm pretty sure it will be controversial that nobody might agree with me. 
but it's hard not to do a comparison when you've been to both places because they are right next to each other. There's a common history there. There's, I mean, when you think of Pakistan, the country you think of after that is probably India. And with India, it's probably the same. Think of Pakistan. And as a traveler, as someone who's a guest from the outside, who's not from either country, it's hard not to make those comparisons. I think that's uh, a little bit of a deeper question that I'll probably make a full video on. But in short, I'd say one thing that just jumps out to you is Pakistan is a lot less crowded. I know that sounds stupid, but it does sound stupid because obviously the population there is a lot less. But it just doesn't feel as overwhelmingly crowded as India does. And that was one of the first things that surprised me. I was expecting Pakistani cities to be much more crowded and jumbled and sort of more overwhelming. And they weren't like that. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that the population is just not as big. But in both places, people are very friendly. I think with Pakistan, it doesn't have as many tourists coming. It's got much less tourists coming. So when you go there, you really feel like, like I've said a lot of times, you feel like you're the first traveler who's ever arrived there, which is a very unique experience for somebody who travels as much as I do. So it gives you a kind of a different look at a country that's really on the cusp. Whereas in India, they see a lot of tourists. So the tourism industry there is very well developed. The tourist trail is very well developed. So you don't feel like you're the first person who's there. With Pakistan, you do feel that. There are advantages and disadvantages to both. But uh, I'll leave it at that. And maybe if you want me to make a video about comparing the two countries, definitely let me know in the comments below. All right, next question. Abdul, give me your recommendations to enhance and update the tourism infrastructure and facilities and Pakistan to facilitate foreign tourists. Just having sort of an easier infrastructure and then having more tourists come and make it easier for people who actually show up. And I think that would be the biggest improvement that I would make. So I think that's just going to come with time with more people coming there and more people coming there to travel. You're going to get these services which are really catered toward tourists to make it a lot easier. Now, adventure travelers, backpackers, they're familiar with the manual process. They're familiar with you know, maybe going things directly, going to the bus station to buy tickets, but to really expand that tourism infrastructure to the masses, you've got to make that process a lot easier. And that's not just only true of Pakistan, but that's true of everywhere. You're going to want to make it as easy as possible for people to travel and book things in a country. A lot of people like tour packages where everything is set up for them. So I think that's again going to happen with time as the tourism industry in Pakistan grows. It's going to be a growing business. More people are going to want to get into that business. And eventually you're going to just have more options for a lot more different types of traveler. All right, next question from Hamza. Share your difficulty in traveling experience. Well, I don't really have one where it's like a, a difficult travel experience or something that horrible that's happened to me. I've had kind of weird things happen to me and I should probably make a separate video about that. Um, attempted robbery, that, that kind of thing. I have some good stories that I probably haven't really told well, I have definitely haven't told on YouTube. They might be somewhere on my site, but uh, that might be something interesting to talk about. But as far as difficulties in travel, you know, honestly, for me, I've done it so much that the difficulties are sort of expected. And, you know, they're more hassles than anything, like getting through airport security. I travel with a lot of equipment, laptop, camera, light, microphone hidden back there, two other cameras, a whole bunch of other equipment. So going through airport security is a nightmare for me. I have the system pretty well down. I have packing cubes and all that, but it's just a huge pain. I don't really like it. Going through airport security is probably the thing that I just dread the most because it's just such a hassle all the time. I got to take all my stuff out. But as far as when I'm actually at a destination, 
can't think of anything horrible that's happened. It has happened. Bad things have happened. I wouldn't say they're horrible things, but I remember almost exclusively the good things. Sorry if that's not a great answer to your question, but that's it. All right. The next question, Suma, what's the best thing about Pakistan? Have you ever felt uncomfortable in Pakistan? Best thing about Pakistan, how unexpected it is and feeling like you're the only tourist. That's really nice. And people appreciating tourists in the sense that a lot of people haven't seen tourists. So they're very friendly. A couple of people bought me tea. And so you get this experience where you're just really welcomed as a tourist. Whereas in Paris, for example, you wouldn't have that because you just have so many tourists that you're no big deal. And have I ever felt uncomfortable in Pakistan? No, I mean, nothing made me feel uncomfortable there. I think as a traveler, when you arrive in a new city, you're always a little bit on alert. So you don't know what the norms are. You don't know if you're, somebody's coming up to you and buying you something. You don't know if that's a scam. You don't know if that's normal. You don't know if they're, they're just being very welcoming. So there's this adjustment period that you have to make. And as a traveler with a lot of experience, generally, if you travel a lot, you probably know that you got to build that up and you can build that up pretty quickly. You get a good sort of traveler spidey sense that you can kind of feel out a situation. But in the beginning, because of that adjustment period, you don't know what the norms are. And I guess the uncomfortable times were just more me in my head trying to figure out, are these are people really this friendly? And luckily for me, people are that friendly. All right, the next question, Asim, which trip was the most remarkable experience of your life? Again, it's so difficult to narrow that down into a single response. I really can't think of a single experience that's just absolutely, absolutely the best travel experience. I have a couple of favorites, a couple of things have happened that have been a really great experience, but I'd say recently, Pakistan, definitely one of my favorite travel experiences, definitely would recommend to a lot of people. How did you find Pakistan? Will you visit again? I found Pakistan because I'm trying to go to every country in the world. And it's been a country I've been interested in for a long time. So it was just next up on my list. I was in the area, so I visited Pakistan. Will I visit again? Probably. But best city to visit travel tournament? I'll definitely come this year if Islamabad wins because it's still in the tournament. Make sure you vote. Hassan asks, when will the Q&A video be coming? Well, it's here. Next question by Ibrahim. Did anyone invite you to study Islam? They did not. That did not happen to me. Aftab asks, what advice would you want to give Pakistani as a tourist? Hmm, that's an interesting question. What advice would I give to a Pakistani person that meets a tourist? And I think honestly, just, I think that, that that question was already answered for me. People were just super nice, super welcoming. I think if you're just being nice and welcoming, that's the best thing you can do for a tourist. I always look at tourists as a guest. And I think a lot of tourists leave feeling as a guest. And the impression that they get from a place really has a lot to do with how they're treated by the locals. And I think a lot of places that have already a lot of tourists, really, they lose a little bit of that. So they're not as friendly toward tourists. They may be a little bit more jaded. And so people leave a little bit more jaded. And that's just going to happen when you have a bunch of tourists. Again, London, Paris, and that so I think finding those really unique local experiences get more difficult as the place gets more popular for tourists. Pakistan doesn't have that many tourists, so you still get that local, really local welcoming feeling. And I think that's great. Honestly, that's left me with a really good impression of Pakistan as I left and also your support on all the videos. Clearly that hospitality shows there as well. So thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that Q&A. Uh, I wanted to leave you with a little bit more quarantine content just before we wrap up this episode, which is the 10th episode of the Fox Nomad podcast. I can't believe it's it's 
been 10 episodes, uh, but I hope you're enjoying these episodes. I'm really enjoying doing the podcast. I really, the feedback I get from you is I really like it. it I feel like I'm, I get to talk to you directly in a way that's a little bit different than video as well, because when you're making a video, there's a lot, for me, there's a lot of concentration on like making basically, for example, just like pacing, making sure that the lighting is right. There's a lot of this visual element that I have to think about. Whereas in the podcast, um, there's some research obviously up front to, to do an episode and, and all that. But I feel like once I hit record, all I got to worry about is is just talking to you. And and it's really nice. It's, it's different than a video where I have a lot more to think about actually as the filming is going on. So it's not just a talking I don't usually have somebody behind the camera to film me. I got to make sure, you know, that the, that the shutter speed is right and I get the right ISO and that the sun doesn't set and that the seagulls outside don't start screaming and so on. Um, so anyway, thank you very much. Uh, whether you've been listening for all 10 episodes or you're new, thank you very much. If you have any questions or anything you want me to cover on the podcast, tweet me at Fox Nomad. And uh, do please leave a five-star review wherever you're listening to this. It is a, a it is a big help for the podcast, so thank you. So for the final bit of quarantine content, I want to share with you a YouTube channel I recently came across by a guy named Andreas Hem. He is a Norwegian um, filmmaker, I believe he is. So Andreas Hem is a guy who, on his Instagram and stuff, like he's hanging out with Will Smith, so I think he does movies... So I think he's he is an actual like filmmaker. So I think he actually does uh, really good, you know, blah, blah, blah. He's a filmmaker is what I'm trying to say. But if you look at his YouTube channel, so a lot of his the videos are like 10, 10 minutes long, but the first five, six minutes are like an, a vlog. And I, I want to say, I mean, it's when I say vlog, I mean, it's like the coolest, like special effects, like sound effects, like crazy transitions i mean he gets like groups of like 30 people i it's it's just fascinating it really is like watching sort of a feature film on youtube a very short one on youtube but it also has this kind of uh a little bit of a i don't want to say amateuristic because it's absolutely different i mean take he takes months in between videos because it takes that long but there is some kind of raw feeling to it which youtube has maybe lost a little bit as, as you know, you get more like TV channels and more like professional stuff on YouTube. His stuff is very professional, but I think it still has that kind of core youtube feeling and they're hilarious. Like his videos are hilarious. If you're into like, if you just want to be entertained, you will love his channel. If you're into filmmaking, you'll absolutely love his tutorials. They're fascinating. Um, so I definitely highly recommend you check this out. His name is Andreas Hem. Uh, I will leave that link in the show notes so you can check out that channel. Uh, and I'll leave you with that. And you can go through and watch a bunch of his videos because they're super entertaining. They're visually beautiful. Um, they're, they're very funny and interesting. A lot, a lot to see there. So thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Fox Nomad podcast. I appreciate you listening. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're safe wherever you are, washing your hands, staying at home, all of that stuff. Thank you very much for listening and I will talk to you in the next episode.